evening everyone welcome to our live broadcast tonight we're looking at Amguttara Nikaya book of three Sutta 21 no not 21 Sutta 18 uh, 19 19 and 20 Papa Nika Papa Nika Papa is a shop Papa pa. someone who Papa Nika someone who keeps a shop the shopkeeper I think this is uh, this one's interesting similes are always nice they give us a frame of reference something that we're familiar with how, how meditators should behave well think of a meditator like a shopkeeper shopkeeper has to concern themselves with profit and loss they have to concern themselves with their goods and their customers shopkeepers have to work that's really the key here so the first sutta is about how shopkeepers have to work in book of threes we have three ways in which a shopkeeper doesn't succeed doesn't succeed doesn't prosper Three ways in which a shopkeeper is incapable of acquiring yet wealth not yet acquired or increasing wealth already acquired. That's quite a simple formula. There's nothing complicated here. They don't work in the morning. They don't work in the afternoon, in the middle of the day, and they don't work in the evening. And they don't work at all. They don't apply themselves. Same with a bhikkhu, a meditator. A meditator who, possessing three faculties, is un incapable of achieving a wholesome state, just like a shopkeeper. Shopkeepers have to work, have to maintain their shop. They have to be vigilant. If you're not careful, the shoplifters will come in, take away your goods, not careful people who cheat you if you're not careful your your goods will be ruined by mice and disease and moths and your shop will be ruined by rain and and so on if you're not careful with your taxes the king will take away or the government will take it away Take away your shop. Same with a monk. A monk has to be vigilant. If a monk doesn't practice in the morning or the evening or the day or the evening, then they'll lose everything they have. They lose all their all their spiritual gains and all the benefit of living the holy life. If a meditator doesn't apply themselves in the morning, then in the morning they lose their mm, and they lose their concentration, they lose their focus, they lose their clarity of mind. They don't, during the day, if they slack off, they lose what they gained in the morning. If they don't in the evening, then they lose what they gained in the day. 
when we sleep at night, we are, even then we lose something. Meditation is something that has to become a very much a part of your life. The more vigilant you are, the more benefit, the more you prosper in the spiritual path. We have, we have shoplifters coming to take away our spiritual gains in the form of defilements. Anger will take away your spiritual gain, greed, delusion, worry, restlessness. Five hindrances will take away your spiritual gain. When your mind is distracted by worldly things, it's like it's like a leaky roof raining down on your your goods and they become ruined if we don't if we don't spend our morning our day and our nights in mindful practice you might think well i'm not a bad person i can just live my life in an ordinary way i won't I won't do anything. I won't purposefully get angry or greedy or you know, just live my ordinary life. I don't really need to meditate. This is like leaving your, the Buddha said, like leaving a, your roof, leaks in your roof. The rain will come in. Uti samati vichati. An uncultivated mind is like a poorly thatched roof. I mean, so this is a good one, I think, for people living their lives to remember that. Remember two things. First of all, that, and in fact, it's interesting because it seems to imply that if you practice in the evening, well, you're at least you're good in that sense. You know, if you don't practice mindfulness or good things in the morning and during the day, but then in the evening you do some meditation, or in the evening you and listen to a Dhamma talk or, or that kind of thing. Uh, then you get gain from that. But what's really bad is if you never do anything. You spend your days never doing anything beneficial. Never doing anything to your uh, gain, for your spiritual gain, spiritual development. But the other thing is that, to, to point out that any time that we're not engaged in mindful exercise of keeping our minds clear. It's a time when the mind can uh, can become caught up in defilement, distraction and defilement. And caught up in unwholesomeness and lose our spiritual gain. Or, or, or not succeed. You know, we won't prosper spiritually, just as a shopkeeper won't prosper if they don't put out effort. So we should think of spirituality as kind of like work. It's, it's, a, it's a job you have to do. It's a duty. It's a chore in a sense. It's not something that should be seen as simple or easy or even comfortable. It should challenge you. But it's something you have to maintain. You have to work at. Happiness is something that you have to work for. 
Happiness doesn't just fall in your lap. It's not just something you can rely upon to always be there. Happiness requires perfection, requires goodness, requires strength, power, purity, all things that you have to work for. That's the first one, quite a simple sutta. The second one's a little more... Um, a little more interesting. So on the theme of a shopkeeper, a shopkeeper needs three factors, has to possess three factors, three things in order to attain vast and abundant wealth. If someone has these three things, if a shopkeeper maintains these three, three things, they will soon attain vast and abundant wealth. What three, a shopkeeper here, a shopkeeper has keen eyes, is responsible, and has benefactors. And how does a shopkeeper have keen eyes? Keen eyes, is responsible, and has benefactors, these three things. Keen eyes means the shopkeeper has to know about an item, has to understand their goods. They have to understand the relationship between goods and money. If I sell the goods at this price, I'll get I'll get this much uh, gain. They have to be good with money. They have to know how much capital is required. If I sell it at this price, then I'm going to need this much capital. I'm going to make this much profit, and I need this much profit to achieve my goals and so on and, you know, economics the laws they have to know the, the laws of economics the economic um, formulas sound like something a meditator has to work, concern themselves about or what does this have to do with meditation no? well how is a shopkeeper responsible moving along Shopkeepers being responsible means they are skilled in buying and selling. And they are um, they are skilled and, and also um, they are engaged in it, meaning they don't just slack off and let the goods sell themselves. They engage with customers and they work at promoting, right? And they do all the all the activities that a successful and, and skilled shopkeeper undertakes. They work to sell their goods. And a shopkeeper finally has should have benefactors. Should have people, investors, you might say, I suppose. Yes, investors. They should have investors who give capital because how else are you going to buy? How else are you going to buy the goods? How else are you going to set up your shop and keep your shop going? So you don't work with only the, the money that you bring in. You work also on loans and, and capital. You know, uh, people who, who support you and give you wealth. With, because from your own uh, modest... Uh, upbringing or, or, or beginnings you can never become rich you can never 
become a, a successful shopkeeper. So three things that anyone looking to set up shop should think about. One, you should be smart about economics. Two, you should be hardworking. And three, you should have investors. Possessing these three factors, a shopkeeper soon attains vast and abundant wealth. What the heck does that have to do with us? It's quite clever, actually, because they, there, there are three uh, neat parallels with meditators. A meditator should have keen eyes, be responsible, and have benefactors or investors. So how does a, how does a meditator have keen eyes? Well, they know the formulas. Not economic formulas, but economic in a sense, in a spiritual sense. They understand that if I do this, this comes from it. If I do that, that comes from it. The Four Noble Truths, they understand this is suffering and this is the cause of suffering. These things that I cling to, these are suffering. Why are they suffering? Because I'm clinging to them. Because they can't, uh, and because they, they can't support that clinging. They can't support my addiction. My attachment to these things is a cause for suffering. Why? Because they're impermanent, unsatisfying, and uncontrollable. Seeing this about your experience. Seeing that the body is changing all the time and you can't rely upon it. Any expectations you have in the body are going to be uh, disappointed. The feelings, the memories, thoughts, consciousness are all un undependable. You can't depend upon them. Understanding the laws of cause and effect. This comes from meditation. This is something you can learn about, but it's much more something that you have to get through experience, just like a shopkeeper. You work as a shopkeeper's apprentice, so you work as a meditator practicing to be a practitioner, to be a meditator. And you gain this sort of experience through the practice. So how is a meditator responsible, like a shopkeeper keeps an eye on their goods and works to sell them while a meditator works to cultivate in insight it's hard work meditating try walking and sitting for hours a day it's something you have to be patient with and methodical something you have to strive towards you have to believe in it it has to be seen as as worth doing if a shopkeeper isn't uh, intent upon riches and is intent upon greatness they'll never prosper they'll never succeed so the meditator is not intent upon spiritual development they also will not succeed and the third one so how does a what does a meditator need investors for you might think this refers to meditators needing food or or something, but no, clever. Medit the investors in the, for a meditator are teachers, people who will answer their questions, people who will explain the teachings to them. These are people who invest their teachings in the meditator. They think the meditator is worth teaching. This is someone who is worth passing along the treasure, worth investing their time and energy in because they fully accept, expect to get a return, that this person will become better, will become in and of themselves a great 
and wonderful person with, with profound insight. Maybe they don't expect such a return, but it, it, they do expect some a return in that sense because they wouldn't teach people who, who weren't able to benefit from it. But they don't expect anything for themselves, but they expect a, a return in terms of um, progress for the meditator. The meditator will, uh, will gain spiritually, will benefit from it. They, if they look at the meditator and they think, oh, this person is incompetent, then they wouldn't invest their time and energy teaching them. So these three, for a monk, we should think of ourselves as a shopkeeper. Our shop is the meditation practice. And we set up shop and we undertake to gain from our goods. Walking and sitting is like a like a great work that you do that gives great benefit and great great uh, great income, prosperity, spiritual prosperity. But you have to have a keen eye. It means you need wisdom. That has to come from real practice. You can't just do walking and sitting like a buffalo. You have to do, to be clever and be attentive. And then you have to work like a shopkeeper works, long hours. And then you have to rely upon your teachers. Don't expect to gain and that you, don't think that you know everything and that you don't ever need any help. Don't be too proud to accept the advice of others. Submit yourself to a teacher. It's very important. So that's our Dhamma for this evening about a shopkeeper. Before, some, before questions, we have, I think, a couple of announcements, or one announcement, anyway. We're going to have a meeting Sunday. Right, Robin? Yes, we, um, we have a volunteer group that helps support the monastery, and um, most of us live very far from the monastery. We do things online. But we always need new people, and sometimes the our very dedicated volunteers, life gets busy, and they they kind of need a break from their duties. So, we uh, we could really use you know anyone who's interested to um, show up at our meeting. We meet on Google Hangouts on Sunday at one o'clock, and we're hoping to meet this Sunday. I realize that's kind of close, but for anyone who's available. Um, I'll put a link into the meditator shout box so uh, people can just jump into the, click the link and jump into the hangout. Um, so you put we'll the link on helpful. Sunday, no? Sunday at one? On Sunday, Sunday, yes, on Sunday when so we're. Come back on uh, Sunday. In the Sunday season. at one o'clock. Yeah, it's it's nice. It's a nice group, and uh, you know, it's it's not a huge commitment. If you just want to show up and just see what kind of projects um, need working on, you're very welcome to. You you're not gonna not going to walk away feel, feeling overwhelmed whatever you know a person is interested and in, whatever time or talents they're willing to share I'm very happy to have those uh, those time and talents okay 
questions? Yes. I don't understand how Kamachanda is burned by Ikagata. Is it because one-pointedness develops only the five jhana factors? Kamachanda, Ikagata. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know that each jhana factor is supposed to attack one of the hindrances. But really, they all you know they all work together. When your when your mind is fixed and focused on a single object, your 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 mind is perfectly pure during that time. So there's no room for kama chanda, vayapada. There's no room for the hindrances. It's quite simple. the The hindrances come from from diversifying, from reacting to the experience. If you if you keep your experience focused on a single object, then there's no room for for the the reactions to come. I mean, that's the idea of the jhanas. How do we explain ego in Buddhism? Thanks. Well, there's two parts to ego. There's belief in self, and well, there's three parts, I guess. There's the belief that there is a self. There is conceit about oneself, and then there is um, attachment to possessions. So those three are the three aspects of what one might call ego. They're based on three defilements, ditti, which is views, mana, which is conceit, and tanha, which is craving. So those three working together are uh, they're the one way of understanding the, the problem or the defilements. Itti mana tanha. If a meditator experiences a sudden absence of the self, of being in a separate self, or a doer, and rather perceives consciousness as being made of a unified substance, so as to speak, in other words, perceiver and perceived is seen as one and the same, resulting in a sense of freedom, joy, and complete effortlessness. Is this something different than having insight in anatta or non-self? Yes, that's, I think something, sounds like something quite different. Hopefully I won't get too scolded for this question. Um, if you have that feeling, it's a feeling, and it should be noted as thus, as such. And this is the problem with, with spiritual practitioners, that they interpret things. So you have a feeling and that a perception, and those should be seen as feelings and perceptions. The feelings arise and cease. The perceptions arise and cease. Just because you perceive something to be to be X doesn't mean it's X. This is what happens with other religions. They perceive things to be God. They perceive things to be meaningful. They find meaning in things that are not meaningful. This is why the Buddha said, "Don't pay attention to the particulars." Because that's infinite. What it might be is infinite. But what it actually is, is a feeling or a perception. And if you look at that perception, you'll start to see, oh, actually consciousness is something that arises and ceases. The perception arises and ceases. I don't scold people for questions, do I? All the time, Bhante. <laughs> I'll be more careful. 
If I had a nickel for every time you said, well, that's not a very good question. No. <laughs> the idea of intention seems to imply a decision made by a decider exercising free will, and that if there is a decider, then that could be seen as a self. But my su subjective experience is that I don't have free will. I become aware that I'm about to do something, but there is no decision process or any evidence of an entity that made that decision. So when the teachings say to know intending, I get a little bit confused as to what mental process this is referring to. Can you clarify? That feeling that you're about to do something, that's called intending. I mean, I wouldn't become too technical or philosophical about it. You can call it what you like, but, but it's kind of like an intention. There's an intention to stand, an intention to walk. And if that feeling comes up, then you just say intending, intending. The whole idea of self is just too much trouble. It's more trouble than it's worth. I wouldn't worry about is there a self, isn't there a self. The Buddha didn't, and he didn't, he didn't frame it that way because it wasn't useful to do so. It's useful to look at things as non-self. So that intention that you have is not self. It arises and ceases. Just sort of sounds like that's what you're seeing. If you get confused, then you should say confused, confused. That's okay too. But no, that's maybe being a little bit facetious because it's a good question. I say questions are good as well. Well, that's true. That is true. Welcome back to Dar. One of our meditators has been away for a long time. She's back from a long retreat. Welcome back. She's also active on Second Life. One of the yes. People. Yes. In the past, you have talked about the importance of avoiding certain kinds of forcing. Last night, you talked about the importance of certain kinds of forcing. Can you elaborate on the wrong kind of forcing or pushing? Because I still don't understand. What sort of forcing did I say is good? Must have been a slip because I don't normally say that forcing is good. The other thing I can think of is pushing yourself to practice. I mean, you kind of sometimes have to push yourself. In a conventional sense, forcing can be good, but in an ultimate sense, when you actually get down to, like you're, you're doing the meditation and you've kind of maybe, this is all I can think of, it's not, I wouldn't usually use the word forcing, but uh, if you're forced yourself to meditate, you say, okay, I don't want to meditate, but I'm going to do it anyway. But then when you med actually meditate, you can't force yourself. You're just trying to observe. And uh, it's very important that you don't engage in forcing anything. And if you see that you're forcing something, that you note that as well, rather than, than uh, cling to it as, as I'm forcing, me forcing. And this is the same person. Also, I still fail to understand what it means to take breaks during intensive practice. Because when I take those mindful breaks from formal mm. meditation during an intensive practice, it's always at least as difficult as it is to just continue formal meditation. Do you mean that sometimes one should relax a little during the break? Uh, informal meditation is going to be less intensive. It's not. It shouldn't be as difficult, although I, I get what you're saying. It's, it's actually sometimes just as easy to continue meditating. Well, in that case, then continue doing it. But, you know, being able to stretch your limbs and go outside and be a little bit less intensive about your, your meditation. If you, uh, 
you know you should still be mindful walking around but it's it's um it's less repetitive there's 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 in a conventional sense it's 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 a relaxing thing for the meditator but uh, in an ultimate in the end you know the, you're right the, the break will be just as much trouble it's also good for your body um, to take a break to not have to sit still for so long so if you get up and, and I don't know stretch or something but I always find that on an intensive practice it's like well what does a break mean really it gives you a chance to step back I guess probably the best thing that it does is that is that gives you a chance to step back and 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 look at your practice you know what am I doing wrong why am I so stressed out if you're you know if it's going if it's difficult taking a break allows you to step back and readjust to make it more uh, more efficient My breathing during meditation has a few seconds of stopping after exhaling, after falling. Do I note it somehow or just the inhale and exhale, rising, falling? If I insist on inhaling quickly, then it's controlling, right? Yeah, you, you don't have to say anything during that. Just rising and falling is fine. After some time, we'll give the meditator to do rising, falling, and then switch because there may be a break, but not, not during the break. You just switch and focus on the fact that you're sitting and you say to yourself sitting but you don't have to worry about it between the breath but you know, there's room there so you just say sitting and then wait for the next rising rising falling sitting but the sitting might take some time and anyway that's something we do for and uh, during the meditation course we'll give more complicated exercises as the meditators and mindfulness gets stronger Bhante, based on your post today about choosing gender, would you please talk more about your view on this? Can those that choose gender choose only for themselves, or are they special in that way that they have some keen vision and can choose anyone and everyone's gender? Even so far as saying the Buddha was a, herma a hermaphrodite, for example. I really don't understand how it would work. I know homosexuality is sometimes in the stories seen as gender change, but is that a choice? Mm -hmm. I'm, honestly, that I'm I'm not for choosing your gender, um, but I I can understand it because of you know based on lives and past lives and that kind of thing, and it seems to me that it's probably better to be true to your inner sexuality than to repress it or pretend you know if you and I guess it's not even sexuality but if you feel masculine then but you're a woman you're in a woman's body or if you feel feminine and you're in a man's body it doesn't seem to be a problem to to sort of straighten things out i guess the big problem is with hormone therapy and and who knows what you know you have to go through it it's not i'm not really for it and i don't think as a buddhist it's it's proper to have a gender change or, or, or that kind of gender reassignment whatever they call it. it doesn't seem to me to be the proper way because of course buddhism is about letting go of our attachments it would be much more efficient and profitable to just you know learn to to see these thoughts as just thoughts 
who cares what body you're in? I mean, what if I was in a body of a horse? Well, big deal, you know? It's just a body. Of course, a horse can't meditate, but you no, know, masculine, male, female body, it doesn't really matter which body you're in. It's just a body, right? Um, to be honest, it was more about, um, I, I've, <laughs> I've been approached recently by Christians. Now that I'm getting out and about, um, seem to be crawling out of the woodwork. I met uh, I met these two two guys walking along, and one of them turns to me and says, "Hey," and they're so friendly. And I thought, "Oh, well, maybe these people are interested in meditation." And we talked, and then this woman came up, and now there's three of them: a young woman, a young men, and young women. Um, and then you know it, they asked me about religion and what religions I'm interested in, and then one of them. He, he, then I start to get suspicious because he says. You ever in, you ever think about studying biblical religions? And then one of them tells me that they're we're Christians, and suddenly it's all about Jesus. And then I'm like, okay, I gotta go. And then today a guy looked at me walking down the street and walked past, and then he walked past again and he looked at me again and he said, "Are you a monk?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "I think he said cool or something." And as he walked away, he said, "Jesus loves you." Nice. So, so then when I saw the Pope was was mouthing off about these things that he shouldn't, I thought it just seemed like he was on such a roll talking about poverty and and you know things that were actually going to be important. It just seems to me, why would you worry about other people's gender? You know, why would you worry about other people having gender changes? Why would why would this be something to be concerned with when there's such bigger things to worry about? I think. I mean, I guess I shouldn't minimalize it because it could be potentially problematic to have a gender change. I'm not really for it, and and but I'm not going to judge people or, or condemn people for it. I just don't like people to be obsessed with such things personally. So it was kind of a, I don't know about that post. Um, but all the things you're asking, your actual questions, um, choosing gender means means having a gender reassignment where you actually change your body in some way. I'm not really sure how it works, but they also take hormone therapy and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, there are teachings where Buddha has to be male, so there may be some real consequences with messing with your gender, but I would say it's probably not as dire as people might think. Um, yeah, it's just... I think there are much worse things to concern ourselves about, like our, the, the clinging to such beliefs. I mean, why do they care? Because God, it's all—it's not because they, they're concerned about the person's well-being. It's because God told them it's wrong. Their books tell them that God told them it's wrong. It's really a silly reason to believe anything. Maybe those are people who think they only have one shot through life. You know, if you're going to be born over and over and over, mm. you'll be all genders. Uh, the follow-up question was, finally, are you a boy, girl, man, or woman, Bante? Thank you. I don't know how to answer that question. I'm a, I'm a monk. I mean, there's no I. I mean, what is, is this a trick question? Am I supposed to fall for it? I don't really understand. That's not a good question. 
And the other thing you say, I don't answer questions about myself. <laughs> oh yes, I don't answer. I don't answer questions about myself. Next question. Is it better to the practice to have a planned routine, like the hour of going to sleep, like an hour of going to sleep, waking up, meditating, etc.? Potentially, but there's also the potential for getting caught up in control, you see, you know, ex expectations. If you have a schedule, you know, it's good, it's good in, in a sense to keep. Um, I guess it's just that you'd want to remind yourself or keep in, keep in mind um, that life is uncertain and things change and your schedule will have to adapt. You know, if you if you get so stuck on a schedule and then when something comes up to break your schedule you freak out no problem or you say I, oh, I can't meditate because I missed the hour to meditate it's not how it works um, so I would say it's it's probably more of a of a novice thing to do and an advanced ninja meditator will be adaptive and will be able to fit meditation in wherever it's convenient and, and not convenient but wherever it's um, wherever there's room, it's much more. You know, it eventually becomes much more natural and much more. So I'd say yes. Actually, the schedules are great as long as you don't cling to them and you adapt them. But but should never. You know, it's it's good if you come back to them when you can. But it keeps you honest. It keeps you focused. I have a question regarding the sub. Sabasawa Sutta, MN2. So the Buddha said the view, I have no self, was a wrong view. To my limited knowledge, this doesn't seem right. Can you please explain it? Thank you. Well, there's no I to have no self. If you say, I have no self, you're, 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 it's a paradox, kind of, right? That's all the Buddha's saying. It's a good point, you know. This is why you get caught up, you get mixed up. If you say there is no self, you're kind of saying the same thing because you're you're already in assuming that a self could exist, meaning you're assuming the existence of entities. And as soon as you assume the existence of entities that exist, the existence of entities of which the self is not one, you've already got self because an entity is a self. So the point is that the universe is not made up of entities. That's really, I would say, the best way to understand self and not self. So if you say, I, you've already got an entity. Bhante, can you please explain your thoughts on what perception one of the five aggregates is? Mm -hmm. Having come across numerous written descriptions on the five aggregates, I can understand what form, feelings, mental formations, and consciousness are but I don't get what perception is. Is it a mental concept of things? It's not, perception is the wrong word. It's actually a mistranslation. The word perception means actually consciousness. I didn't realize it, but if you look it up in the dictionary, it really just means to be aware of something. But uh, because we use it as your perception, you know, it, it, was, it, 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 it was used for sanya, but sanya means, sang means like, Nya is to know, to know something like something else. So it's recognition. Um, I, 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 there was a bhikkhuni from, from Taiwan who argued with me about this, and she said, 
she said something else and I realized she's right that sanya can actually mean many things it, it's used in different ways but in terms of the five aggregates I'm quite clear that it means memory and recognition when you recognize something which we call memory that's uh, sanya so if you see something and you recognize it as red or yellow or you recognize it as uh, a cup or you recognize it as a person and you re remember their name that's sanya How is sanya different than sati? Sati and sanya are related, actually. Tira sanya is the proximate cause of sati. That's that's a very good uh, point, and it's a good question. Um, tira sanya, when, when you remember something for what it is, and you remember it, re-remember it, right? remind yourself about it, that's sati. So they are related, and in fact, etymologically, they're related as well. <clears throat> no, maybe not. No, they're not. They're not etymologically related. Strike that. But sanya and sati are related, and read the commentaries, which is, which is a great way to explain why we say to ourselves, seeing, seeing. Because that tira sanya, tira means strong and firm. Sanya is recognition. When you recognize something and you fix yourself on that recognition, that's tiras, that's sati. Of course, it also means not recognizing it as red or blue, but recognizing it as seeing, because red isn't real. Red is sanya. Red is a, well, it's a kind of a sanya. Eh, I don't know. Again, you can say red, red, but because the red is not real, it's sanya, but a concept. Um, it's a sati. It's still sati, but it's not vipassana. It won't lead to insight. It's based on the object, that's all. But yeah, sanya and sati are cause and effect with each other. Sanya is the cause. Thank you, Bhante. I am finding noting wanting quite difficult as it seems ambiguous and rarely clear. In one of your videos, you mentioned that wanting is a kind of stress. Could you elaborate or give general advice on proper noting of it? Thank you, Bhante. Well, wanting is momentary, you know, it's just, it's fleeting. So it wouldn't, unless you realize that you're wanting something, wouldn't say wanting, but um, maybe you're you're thinking about it too much because you can ask you can ask you know you, do you ever want anything? Do you know that you're wanting something? For sure, there are times where you want something. You, if you think of a cheeseburger and you want it, or you think of a, uh, a song and you want to listen to it, or you just think of a person and you want to see them something come something pleasant and you want to touch it or smell it or taste it or listen to it that's all wanting the wanting is there i wouldn't overthink it if there's wanting just say to yourself wanting the point is not to really focus and and, and understand too much about the thing the point is to not react to it so that you just see okay there it was wanting and now it's gone and, and over time, you'll start to see things in that way. Okay, it came and it's gone. And all we need, to, all we need to learn, is that things come and go. Basically, because then you'll see that they're un, you'll realize that they're unsatisfying and uncontrollable. You wouldn't overthink it too much. If you if you're aware that oh here I am wanting this, just say wanting. You don't have to be too too. You don't have to catch it. You see, and you can't catch it. 
In fact, it may very well be that your confusion is because you're in one of the jnanas where you see things ceasing before you can really grasp them and get a sense of what they are, which is important. It's important to see that things are always ceasing and you can't hold on to them. They're not going to wait around for you to study them. And that's important because the study that you need to do is that they, are, they don't stick around. Does Buddhism include the notion of investigation of one's own mental and emotional processes? Who, what, why, how? I don't really understand. I mean, our practice doesn't. If you read our read my book on how to meditate, you'll get a sense of how we practice. A question regarding Google Hangouts. Do I need to add anyone before using the link and connecting to the Hangout on Sunday? Or is the link all I need to connect? Thank you. I think the link is all you need to connect. It seems to work. I mean, some people have been complaining it isn't working, so that's a shame. Mm -hmm. But um, my understanding that is that it works. I think you do have to do something to maybe, maybe just make sure that you have Hangouts installed and mm -hmm. set up properly. So probably just make sure that it's somewhere on your you know on your pc or device and maybe go through the settings um because i i seem to remember that i had to install something at one point but you don't need to add anyone um just be able to just click on the link okay i think that's it yes all right thank you everyone uh, good night. Thanks, Robin, for joining us. Thank you, Bhante. Good night. Thanks,